Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. Each week alternates between an interview with a guest and a solo episode where I unpack some scholarship. This week's episode is an interview with Roger Manti, who was one of my co-chairs for my dissertation. Over the years of working with Roger, he has challenged my own understanding of education by encouraging me to think about the importance of leisure in relation to education. In this particular episode, we discuss the importance of leisure for self-preservation, challenging the single focus of education for workforce readiness, the importance of focusing on happiness and well-being, considering discourse in education and around leisure, and much more. When listening to this particular episode, I encourage everyone to think of how might computer science education relate to leisure rather than just workforce readiness. It's one of the reasons why I reached out to Roger to do this particular interview, and it's one of the reasons why I did an episode on modding for leisure, which I'll include a link to that in the show notes, which you can find at jaredoleary.com, or by simply clicking the link in the app that you're listening to this on. All right, so we will now begin this interview with an introduction by Roger. I'm currently an associate professor in the Music and Culture Program, which is situated within the Department of Arts, Culture, and Media, and this is all at the University of Toronto's Scarborough campus. It has a couple of campuses, but I also have a graduate appointment that is downtown. That's in the Department of Curriculum, Teaching and Learning, which is at the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education, which is part of the University of Toronto, but it's essentially the Faculty of Education. I've been back in Toronto for, this is my third year, I guess. Prior to that, I was at Arizona State University, and prior to that, I was at Boston University. And prior to that, I was a school music teacher in Manitoba. So most of my career has been in the field of education, certainly in the field of music education, primarily prior to now, where I'm a little bit more in the you know, Department of Arts, Culture, and Media. It's music a little bit more broadly focused. So can you tell me a story about an experience in education that continues to impact you? So I've been, I guess, in education formally for, I hate to say it, it's about 30 years or so. I don't know... Uh, you know, when you talk about like one story, that can be a little bit tricky because <laughs> there are just so many stories over a 30-year career. I suppose one of my favorite stories when I was teaching school, you know, I was a band director and one year, well, I did this a number of years, but one year, top jazz ensemble, we spent a lot of time creating our own set. This entire thing was student created. You know, I was really a believer in that. And I thought, okay, this is great. So we went into a festival and in the U.S., festivals are sometimes called contests, you know, usually a competitive affair. This particular festival was also a little bit competitive. And we went in and we went to play. And before we started, you know, the adjudicators, and remember, this was a jazz festival. The adjudicators sort of stopped me. I was about to introduce and, and then they were like, uh, uh, but we need the score. And I said, there wasn't a score. And there wasn't just one. There were, there were like these three jazz adjudicators. And they were like, well, but we can't really adjudicate you without a score. <laughs> When you think about the irony of this being jazz, you know, the idea that an art form, you know, at least in the mythology, you know, predicated on an improvisation and creativity, you would not be able to evaluate a group unless you had a score. The implication being that we can't tell how well you're doing unless we can compare it to this notated version of what you're supposed to be doing. So the point of the story being that it exposed the underlying sort of value structure that says that the only way we can understand what you're doing is by comparing it to your attempt to match up with this other thing. And of course, we can only evaluate then in terms of your rightness or wrongness, the extent to which you successfully executed what I'm seeing in this written version, this embodied form of sound as it exists in a kind of visual representation way. And so it was 
at that point when I, I started to really step back and rethink, you know, and I'd been in this, I'd been teaching for quite a long time by this point, you know, I was probably 10, 12 years in. And, but at that point I was like, okay, there's something seriously messed up with the structures of our field in terms of what we think we're about, because we think that this is about the joy of music making and the love of music and whatnot, but really it's putting students through a particular exercise that is meant to simply cram something into them or at them and then force them to regurgitate it back. And I started to see how all of the education system was about a normative comparison and ranking exercise, you know, that this particular music festival embodied. But you can see this in any, I mean, standardized tests, you know, high stakes standardized testing is pretty indicative of that. It's basically how everything in education cannot be understood unless it is filtered through a kind of codification and standardization and I just came to realize at that point that that was really at odds with my own value system of how I understood learning and teaching and schooling and education. And I suppose that that was probably the beginning of the end of my public school career insofar as it got me thinking, you know what, I need to learn more. And so that's, I think that was very close to around the time when I made the commitment to pursue a PhD and, and higher education. And is that how you started looking into researching leisure? Or is there a different story that kind of impacted that interest? So we were living in Manitoba at the time, and my wife and I, we quit our jobs, we sold the house, sold all our possessions, and we moved to Toronto so I could start the PhD. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, it seems a little crazy to think about it now, but <laughs> when we did that, we didn't really have much in the way of income and whatnot. So a couple of the little gigs that I took on, I mean, they were very small. And so one of the things I did was I took on the position of the director of the Royal Conservatory of Music Community School Jazz Ensemble. So the community school not being the sort of professional training stuff for young people that the Royal Conservatory of Music is known for, but rather their kind of community school outreach stuff. And this jazz ensemble was fascinating because there were just like people in the community who loved playing jazz in a big band setting and they wanted to keep on playing and they didn't know where else to go. So they would pay a little bit and participate. And they turned out to be a really interesting, eclectic mix of people from all sorts of different backgrounds and walks of life. It was a reminder after teaching music in school where, you know, music at the high school level is often elective, which means that students are choosing to be there, but sometimes they're choosing to be there under the auspices of of what high school is and getting credits and whatnot. And sometimes certainly because of their parents saying music is good for you, you need to do this. But then you get out and you have adults who have no reason to be there other than they just want to make music because they just like making music. And that was one of the two gigs. And the other gig was I got the gig as the director of the Hart House Symphonic Band. So at the University of Toronto, Hart House is the student center. If you've seen the Harry Potter movies, Hart House looks very much like Hogwarts. And the Great Hall in Hart House where we rehearsed was the exact copy of the Oxford one where the first Harry Potter Great Hall of Hogwarts was. So that gives you the visualization of it. And that's where we would rehearse each week. The ensemble was made up of non-music majors. The faculty of music has all their own ensembles. This was for anybody on campus who just wanted to keep playing. In combination with that, the jazz ensemble, the Royal Conservatory Community School, you know, twice a week, I was surrounded by all these people who were not there as part of their pre-professional training in the case of, you know, undergraduate students or as part of their occupational interests in the case of the community school jazz ensemble. So, you know, and they were just from all sorts of different disciplines. And the passion that they brought was what really, I think, I'd been thinking about lifelong aspects of music making for a long time, even when I was teaching in school. But then when I saw how 
dedicated these students were. And one particular story, you know, one of the pieces I did with the group one year was uh, Godzilla Eats Las Vegas, you know, a famous kind of campy piece, very programmatic. It's fun. In there, they have a part for a theremin. And, you know, so the percussionist comes up to me after rehearsal and he's like, what is this, this thing? And I kind of explained to him, it was like, well, you know, the Beach Boys, good vibrations, you know, Star Trek, you know, this sound. And, and he understood. So of course, the next week he comes back and he's got one. And I'm like, where on earth did you find a theremin? And he was like, oh, I just built it. And, you know, again, this was, this was kind of like in the, I don't know, 2007, 2008 kind of era. And so, you know, yes, you could kind of just look up do-it-yourself stuff but it's not like today with youtube where you can find everything so this he was an engineering student he was like yeah no i just i mean i asked my professor i was like oh that's that's easy i can just do that so he just built a theremin and just brought it in the next week just because that's what you do and so i think that those kinds of experiences really reinforce for me the basic idea that it's not like you have to choose if you're thinking about music students as people who take degrees in music, you know, this is a vocational path, it's a professional path, you're doing a particular thing. And the point is that you're going to be a musician or do something in a primarily music related field. Whereas none of the people that I was interacting with on a regular basis in either of those two settings, music was their love and their passion. And they didn't feel like a failed musician. They felt like, yes, I'm going to be an engineer, but I just like making music, you know? And so it was really uh, formative in solidifying, I guess, for me, various strands of thought that I'd been having about how the place that music might fill in both individual lives and society lives, collective lives, social lives, and whatnot. And how is their dedication different? Because like to be a music student, like both of us having been there and done that, like it requires an immense amount of time in order to go through a ton of dedication if you are going to sign up as a music major. But how is it different for the people who are doing it in their leisure? One of the things that I think is interesting, at least for me, is the purpose or the way in which people are conceptualizing their activity. And those early days, I've done a lot of research in this area. And there's no one size fits all, you know, in terms of people's responses. So I've spent a lot of time interviewing and talking to people and, and surveying people in various sort of areas. So for example, not to plug my recent book, but you know, the book that I just came out with Brent Talbot and I wrote Education, Music and the Lives of Undergraduates. And then the subtitle, which is the real title, which is Collegiate Acapella and the Pursuit of Happiness. And for so many of those students, you know, when I would ask them, because they're non-music majors as well, and I would ask them, you know, why do you do this, et cetera, et cetera, because it, it's very time consuming to speak to your point about the dedication. And of course, they had a lot of different responses, but for so many of them, it was what they thought was the critical thing for personal wellness. Like they really conceptualized this in terms of an overall not just self-preservation, although I'll speak to that in a second, but it was an overall very deliberate understanding that they needed to do something for self-care and something that they loved doing. So they really liked doing that. You know, so I interviewed people at what was it, 24 different institutions or whatnot. And because I was living in Boston at the time when I did most of this, you can just imagine some of the institutions in and around Boston. Basically, I visited almost every one of them. If they had a collegiate acapella group, I was there. So you might imagine, let's say, a prominent math and technology school in the Boston area, you know, maybe it wasn't Harvard, but it was close to Harvard geographically. So you might imagine an institution there. Can't think of one. 
<laughs> no, exactly. And so when I interviewed uh, some of the students there, I mean, their response was, you know, this is such an intense math and science place and it's just fundamentally unhealthy. If you don't have something to counterbalance that in a creative area or something that is not that, it was their belief that they would just go crazy, you know, if they didn't do something to create some balance in their lives. And so even though it was time consuming, they, you know, in the kind of risk reward, the return on investment kind of rationality, they definitely all felt that it was worthwhile. And so, you know, of all the people that I've spoken to, there's always invariably some sort of rationalization that speaks to how they think that this is helpful for their overall well-being. And, you know, some of them put it more in physical terms, some of them more in mental, you know, health and well-being terms. I mean, it, the terms vary from person to person, but it's kind of a common theme that despite the time and investment, they feel like the return outweighs any of the costs. So what about people who think that, okay, that's nice and all, like, yeah, we should have, we should be healthy mentally, physically, but that should occur outside of school. The purpose of school is to focus on like career readiness. So like, how do you respond to people like that? Well, yeah. And that kind of gets us into sort of a different area that is part of the underlying desire to pursue the leisure angle, you know, just as a general lens or concept for me is really guided to put it in maybe fancier terms. It's really for me, part of a neoliberal critique, which is to push back on the work-focused education discourses that have come to dominate life in the last 20 to 30 years. We aren't always very good at history, I would say. I happen to love history. And, you know, John Dewey is not that historical, but of course his work is now getting more like 100 years old-ish. And, you know, Democracy in the Education, his, one of his famous books, yeah, many, but that was one that some of us in education, like, I think it was 1916. I think that's about right. So around 100 years. And Democracy in Education is really pretty notable when you look at it in terms of how Dewey really speaks about education education's responsibility for both the vocational and the avocational. And, you know, Dewey, yes, he was part of the progressive education movement, but he was also a pragmatist. And so American educational thinking during that time, it's not like people were so out there in the kind of, oh, it's just all liberal education. We don't worry about what people are going to do for a living. They were very concerned about that. They were very concerned about schooling as part of vocational preparation. There's no two ways about it. But they treated it as two sides of the coin where you had to have a vocational with it, which is to say, if you were not preparing people for a life as well as a living, then that was negligent and irresponsible as an educational institution. So today's, it's just out of control in terms of how the political right, and I don't mean this in a political commentary sense, but just in the it's not even just the political right, actually, it's that's maybe not accurate. It's the neoliberal forces that like to make claims that everyone benefits from a kind of work-focused education system, the basic rationality being that quality of life is equivalent to the gross domestic product, but 
in fact, it's nonsense. <laughs> There's absolutely no evidence to back that up. And as a matter of fact, research on quality of life and happiness, for example, shows that there's not only no correlation with GDP, and sometimes there's an inverse relationship. And if you look at happiness studies, for example, which I have, I mean, it's a field. And I mean, the US is notoriously lowly ranked on studies of happiness, quality of life, all of those types of measures that speak to the kinds of values that one might imagine might be important to average people, but instead people have just been bowled over by, you know, let's just say the powerful in society who continue to bulldoze through this really self-serving discourse that everything is going to go to hell in a handbasket if we don't have more math and science, you know, STEM kind of educations. And, you know, it's now disappeared from the websites but if you can find archival websites you know pearson when they were really behind the common core push you know so prior to the trump presidency the common core was like a big thing and if you read the mission statement of the common core it was all about helping students compete in the global economy mm -hmm. and you know my good friend and colleague and co-editor on the music making and leisure book gareth dylan smith i remember him i think it was a facebook post or something that he wrote you know a while ago he moved to the u.s they had been living in england for a long time they moved to the u.s and of course he's always fascinated by some of those cross-cultural comparison things usually having to do with language and you know biscuits and scones and stuff like that <laughs> I mean, one of the things that he observed, you know, as, as kind of one of those sort of social observations was how everyone in the U.S. seemed to believe that they were, you know, so proud of being the winners of a competition that no one else in the rest of the world really knew existed or cared about. Because no other country really cares about being the winner of this global race. The fact that people continue to believe that if you don't force students into, you know, STEM fields, that somehow the U.S. is going to fall behind because that's all part of the the STEM discourse, which is we're going to fall behind. That's that's how you know you invoke fear through falling behind, falling behind, and other countries are going to overtake us. This kind of thing, and the kind of collateral damage with that is that anything that doesn't serve that purpose becomes extraneous and becomes dispensable. And so the idea of educating for a, a life, there's no money to be gained in that. That's not going to in the simplistic sense of it, the GDP is not going to be increased by educating people to have a happy life. When in fact, I think, you know, a more nuanced understanding would say, actually, you know, when people are happier about what they do, they tend to actually be a little bit more productive. So if you really do care about that, you might actually want to do that. But that's like, why would you invest in something like music? Why would you have music or arts education in general, unless you could rationalize it as advancing the GDP? <laughs> you know yeah i've heard some people argue well there's not enough time in the school day for even learning how to like balance a checkbook like that's for whatever reason is like a common phrase even though people don't have checkbooks anymore <laughs> but like it's the concept behind it that i think they're trying to get at and it's like okay well i mean yes you're right we're not going to have enough time in the school day for everything but does that mean that we focus 100 percent on career readiness or like what's the balance that we try and strive for like do you have an ideal because you have Two daughters, like, did you aim for a school that, like, tried to strive for a balance between leisure and work, or was that not a consideration? Well, I mean, I guess the work, non-work, sort of leisure versus work dichotomy, it can be helpful, you know, and obviously I talked about Dewey and that combination of vocation and avocation, but especially now in a, in a kind of pandemic and eventually hopefully post-pandemic world, you know, I think if there's any 
potential silver lining. Who knows if, if it'll materialize, but I think it's really caused so many people to reflect upon the role of work, the nature of work, their relationship with work in ways that has sort of been glossed over or forgotten about or, or just flown under the radar up until now as everything just intensifies. And I think it's fascinating for so many people who have now had the kind of work from home experiences and whether they think about it in terms of lines between work and non-work, or if they think about it in a kind of holistic way, you know, because it, it very much depends, I think, on what the specific nature of work is. You know, as a university professor, where is the line between my work and my leisure? I mean, it's, it kind of blurs. I mean, there are certainly aspects of my job that, I mean, there's no way to paint it as leisure. I mean, it's just work. It's grunt work that has to get done. And I'm not talking about anything teaching wise, which I love, but I just mean like there are certain service things and there are certain, like you can't get away from attending certain meetings that, I mean, what do I get out of that? Nothing. But when I think about, you know, scholarship or even the teaching aspects, I mean, this I find enriching and rewarding and I think it's good. So to your question, when I think about, you know, my daughters, for example, what I really care about is not so much work or non-work, but rather their eventual happiness and well-being. But I think in that sense, one of the things that concerns me is that they have enough interests and develop enough skills, capacities, dispositions to be able to avail themselves of those interests that they can feel good about their lives. And to avoid the dichotomous sort of work, non-work, not everybody has the same number of chances. And so there are some people of necessity, they find themselves having to work for a living and doing work that is not in any way rewarding and can never be rewarding. You can try as you want to, but I mean, there are some things that just have to be done and you know they may not be rewarding. So then how do you construct a wonderful life, a beautiful life, a meaningful life, knowing that you have to do this thing that is unavoidable because most of us have to do things, you know, I have to take out the trash and nobody's going to do it for me. I have to do it and I can complain about it, but it has to be done. And, you know, I can try to make it as enjoyable as I want to, but at the end of the day, it's taking out the trash. But if I have to take out the trash, what else can I do to live a meaningful life? And I think that that's where, if we can put our spotlight there, I think it would go a long way to undoing some of what I think has been a, a very harmful path that we've been on for a long time. I mean, just look at what has become of education. I mean, it, it's just a mess. I mean, it's a mess everywhere. In the US, it's especially a mess because of the sort of fracturing of the haves and the have-nots. I mean, that's a very unfortunate thing because then the things that are seen as frivolous or expendable are usually the kinds of things that learners in less well-resourced areas, you know, more impoverished areas, the, the learners that most benefit from those things that value engagement are usually cut out as saying, well, no, that's what these people don't need. And it's a travesty, it's shameful, and it's hard to believe that anyone who has a nuanced understanding of education would ever do that. But of course, people think they're acting in someone else's best interests. And, you know, no, what they really need is to improve their test scores. If they want to have a shot at a happy life, they need to. Yes. And so we're going to improve their test scores by cutting out all of the things in education that these students might find any sort of personal satisfaction from. Let's eliminate that from them. And let's turn schooling into the most 
the worst drudgery imaginable, and that's going to help them the most. I mean, that's just ludicrous, right? It's, it's just silliness. <laughs> I'm at an interesting point professionally where like I'm in two fields simultaneously and it's fascinating seeing like how different the discourse is around those fields so like in terms of funding or national discourse or like request for we need to have this in our program in our school in our district etc I'm curious what are your thoughts on what the arts might be able to learn from computer science and what computer science might be able to learn from the arts so like as an example of discourse it was the music for all movement by nafmi and then there's the computer science for all or cs for all that's going on there are two like national movements and one of them is getting like millions of dollars in funding and the other is like a blip on the radar you may or may not even know that it exists the amount of like public outcry like oh well, if we don't have this my kids future blah 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 for computer science like they're really passionate about that but then for music there's also like outcry how are you going to cut my music program but we're not going to give any funding for furthering that etc you know one of my intellectual inspirations or sources you know, was the work of michel foucault and that was really helpful for me during my graduate studies not that foucault or anyone else has all the answers but it was just that when i started to engage with that kind of thinking for me what it really did was open my mind to a different way of understanding because, you know, quite honestly, to that point, I was operating in a pretty naive realism kind of way. And it was very frustrating because it's difficult to make sense of the world when you really are only seeing it one way. And, you know, for Foucault, if you know about his background, he had a position at the College de France, which was like the most prestigious educational institution in France and he had a chairship and you got to name your chairship when you got hired for those things. And, and it was a sweet gig. You, you had to teach one course a year. That was the gig. But he called his chairship the chair of systems of thought. And that's kind of a revealing chairship when you really stop, if you know anything about his work and you think, oh, systems of thought, because you start thinking about different rationalities and different logics and you start to realize, you know, because that's when he started you know, you had to do two dissertations back then. And so one of his was in psychology and he had this real fascination with psychology because of the idea of reason, reason and unreason. So what is reasonable, you know, because then when you start to dig deeply, you start to realize that insanity is not a thing. It's simply a rationality. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking about the world. And so everything essentially just boils down to normative sort of systems or rationalities and different logic. And so when you think about the funding for these different fields, you know, the music for all things, I mean, everything comes from a place of situated values. So there's nothing innocent about the National Association for Music Education's push, just as there's nothing innocent about the computer science push. I mean, the whole STEM thing was an invention. I mean, if you've done the history on STEM, you know that the order of the letters used to be different, but then they were like, hey, this would be a better branding if we flip the letters around so it's spelled STEM, because of course that relates to STEM cells and that's like the origin and that's the core, you know, there are all those type of things. And then the whole thing also was just a big marketing ploy. There's nothing inherently valuable about STEM subjects, if we can call them that. I mean, it was all just part and when they do the analysis, especially of the market analysis, that's also really fascinating as well. If you've studied some of that, 
is there a shortage of, of STEM workers? No, in fact, there's not. There's a shortage, you know, in the labor force, there's a shortage in a couple of niche little areas. And it's more a problem of distribution in that the people who have backgrounds in that don't want to live in some of the places where the jobs are, you know, and it's all messed up, but it's all part of manipulation. So people just manipulate this kind of stuff to try and advance their own interests. And that's just kind of a human thing, right? We all manipulate the information in ways that we think is going to advance our own interests. And so the problem, I think, is at a certain point, if you are an educator with values that are situated genuinely in human welfare, I think it does demand a certain detachment. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting any sort of objective play. There's no point of pure objectivity when it comes to human welfare or anything like that. But if a person can attempt to bring a, a level of criticality, so if you're in computer science and you bring a genuine level of criticality to so start questioning, where's this push coming from? Whose interests are being served by this particular push? And I mean, I think you could speak about this for any endeavor, but I think if there was genuine conversation, if a person could put the spotlight and interest on human welfare rather than a disciplinary self-interest, then perhaps people could find ways to question their own practices and assumptions. You know, like, I mean, what is to be gained from an interest in computer science? Well, I mean, the people who are into that obviously love it. Hopefully, one would assume that the people who that are in it genuinely love it, as opposed to feeling like they were pushed into it because somebody said that that was how they were going to get the best high paying job. I mean, that seems really sad to think of it that way, in the same way that hopefully people that are doing music are doing it because they genuinely love it and not because their parents told them it was going to make them better people or they thought they were going to be smarter, you know, music makes you smarter, some, some goofy thing, right? And I just think about, and, you know, it hasn't come up, but I was reminded, you know, just this morning when I thought about this podcast today, and I was reminded that when I was in Boston, I'd been working on this leisure thing for a little bit, not decades, but, you know, a number of years, and I was doing some literature review, and I came across this dissertation, you know, because I'd put in, you know, music and leisure and whatnot. And this dissertation came up, Varda Shaked or Shikhead, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but I did meet her because I sought her out, you know, and I came across this thing. And then I realized that she was living in Boston. So I just, I cold called her and we met for coffee and had a wonderful conversation. And her dissertation, you know, the, the meaning of music making for computer scientists with serious music making a vocation. What comes out of that dissertation, I think, you know, reading it is you just get a sense of the passion. And it's not like they treated it in either or terms. I mean, they love their music and they love their computer science. And you also got the sense that because they loved music so much in the case of her seven participants, but they didn't want to give up their engineering or computer science interests. It wasn't like they went into it for the money. It's because they loved their computer science and they thought, okay, I can still do this music thing in addition to my computer science thing. Whereas maybe if they had done the music thing, it seems a little bit more unusual to do like computer science as a hobby. Not that people don't, I know they do. I just think it was really interesting in the way that that dissertation made me think more deeply about the fact that those were people who cared about how they lived life. They loved their music for what it did for them. Something that seems to be pretty common to a lot of people who do music, what I would call avocationally, which is to just kind of skirt the verbiage of, you know, leisure time music making or recreational music making or amateur, right? So some people treat those as pejorative terms. 
So if you just think about it as avocational, it's just like, okay, they're doing this not for their primary occupation. If, if I remember correctly, though, because it's been a couple of years since I read that dissertation, the music informed the computer science and the computer science informed the music making. So like it had this like effect where it's like the avocational and the vocational both informed each other. And so they were able to learn from both of them. So it was this interesting like symbiotic relationship. Yeah. What I take away from it is that it's not driven by a specific disciplinary concern. Right. Because again, as Foucault points out, you know, we invented the disciplines. They're not naturally occurring. They're a human construction. And so there is nothing disciplinary that we should be thinking about as in any way driving this bus. It's just, it, you know, when you read their stories, they were just passionate people who loved stuff. They loved learning. They loved exploring things. They loved creating. They loved interacting. They liked thinking about the world in different ways, uh, you know, and then they made some pragmatic choices in terms of career, but they obviously developed those skills along the way. They had the music option because they learned stuff about music. They learned how to make music in a, let's say, a trained way. Not that it always has to be about that because, I mean, we all have voice, everybody can sing, but I mean, they instrumentalists, most of them, you know, and so they played instruments and that it doesn't come from the sky and it doesn't, these days, maybe it can come from YouTube a little bit. You can have some self-starting, but for the most part, you know, you have some formalized learning along the way that develops the capacity so that you can engage. Because if you don't have that entry level skill, then, you know, options are cut off to you. And, you know, back to the story about, you know, my own children, I just, you know, I don't really care what they do. I mean, a little bit, yes, as every parent does, but mostly I just care they're happy. But I have along the way been concerned with them developing certain capacities because if you have no abilities, if you if, if you can't do anything, it really cuts off your options as you get older. It's not that you can't learn new things when you're older, but it's just so much harder. I just want people to be able to participate in anything that they like to do and be able to pursue it to whatever extent they want to pursue it and to enjoy it as much as they can. If we can put the emphasis on human enjoyment, human welfare, human well-being, then I think some of the distinctions, I mean, yes, there's always going to be battles over scarce resources, but I think those battles can take on different meanings if we place the spotlight in different places. But how do you personally focus on your own welfare? Because I know you have many ways of engaging in leisure outside of just music making. Just like the people at MIT, for example, who felt the need to balance out things in their lives, because I spend so much time in front of a computer and so much time reading and thinking and writing and everything else, because I'm no longer, you know, actively teaching music as music in the way that I used to, but then of late, you know, I mean, I haven't found people to be playing my saxophone with when I'm now picking up the flute and I'm learning Irish flute music, you know, just for fun to do that. So that's at least one musical outlet. But for, for the most part, you know, I just like to do physically active things just to balance out you know, all the reading heavy, you know, text, computer screen type of things. I mean, you got to get outside, you got to do something else. So I like to do that. I did resume my squash career a little bit. And then of course, everything got shut down again. So I like to do sports, you know, it's more fun. Where might people go to connect with you and the organizations that you work with? Well, I think these days, anybody can Google anybody. So I think I'm pretty easy to find online. I don't do a ton of like, promotion or anything like that. But most of my stuff is easily available online. And I hope that anybody listening will at least take up the opportunity to ask themselves, you know, what they do for enjoyment outside of or beyond work. Or if work is everything, I mean, that's fine too. But as long as the question is there, like, because I think that's the question that a lot of people have been 
asking themselves now in this kind of pandemic world is like, wait, is work the only thing in my life? I mean, do I have nothing? I wake up in the morning, do I just go on the computer and I start working? Or, you know, is there anything else? So. And with that, that concludes this interview with Roger Manti. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you are considering the potential for leisure in computer science education. And if you're interested in learning more about leisure in computer science education, I highly recommend checking out the episodes I've done on modding and mod culture, which I will include a link to in the show notes. If you'd be so kind, please consider sharing this episode with somebody else who might be interested in it. But otherwise, stay tuned next week for another Unpacking Scholarship episode and two weeks from now for another interview. Hope you're staying safe and are having a wonderful week.